Uh, my name is Terry. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And uh, just glad that you've all decided to come worship with us this morning. If you are new to Stonebridge, uh, we'd like to invite you to share some information with us so that we can drop a note and uh, introduce you to some of the ministry opportunities at the church. Now, there's two ways you can do that. You can text WELCOME to the number that will appear on the screen. And the other is there is a card in the seat back in front of you. And on one side, it says WELCOME. And there's a place there for you to record your contact information. And then on the other side, there is a part that says PRAYER. And this is for everybody, not just new people. But it's a place where you can record prayer requests and praises. And uh, since they gave me a mic, I've got a prayer request that I'd like to share. My, uh, I've got five brothers, and my oldest brother, Donnie, is currently in the hospital. Uh, through some medical complications, he had a, he's had AFib for quite a while. It sort of runs in our family. And he recently had a heart valve replacement. So when you add those together with uh, blood thinners, okay, there's, there's an opportunity there. He ended up falling or something, and he had blood in his kidney, and then in his whole whatever you call this area where all our other stuff is, or a lot of it is, and very uncomfortable, and he's just going to have to work his way through it. So he's in a lot of discomfort. He's in the hospital, visited him yesterday, and just, uh, you know, pray for healing. Pray that uh, he would be able to find some comfortable positions and that that would go away. And just pray for strength for him and uh, his wife, Glenda, and their family. Uh, we believe in the power of prayer. And if you do submit prayer requests, you know, these will be prayed over by people during the week, and they count it joy for the opportunity to, uh, you know, share your needs with the Lord and to, and to echo, echo those uh, requests. And toward that end, I just ask that you would pray with me now as we continue worship. Father, we thank you for this day. And uh, this day happens to be a day that we call Father's Day. And it's an opportunity to uh, honor our fathers, our grandfathers, uncles, just the male people in our lives that uh, have such an impact on us. We just pray that this would be a great day for uh, fellowship for those who can get together with their dads. And uh, we pray for the dads because it's difficult. We, we think about the, uh, the task that you've called us to, the role that we are to have in our families and in our churches and in our communities and it can weigh on us and we just pray that you'd give us courage clarity and strength as we try to fill that role we also know that father's day is a day that can be bittersweet for people maybe you've maybe you've lost your dad like i've lost mine or uh, you know maybe your father didn't live up to the expectations that you had maybe your father was absent which reminds us that we have a perfect father who's never going to disappoint us, our good, good father, our father in heaven, and we can turn our eyes toward him. We uh, raise up praise. We had a great week at Backyard Bible Clubs in Stony Point this week at Jerry and Shelley Ask's house. Uh, the gospel was preached, and songs of praise were, were lifted up. And we uh, pray for the coming week as we have Backyard Bible Club at Fairfax. We just pray for the provision of volunteers and then just all of those young minds and hearts that they would come and we could share you with them. We also offer up praise for the Leverings that uh, had safe travel and had some time together as a family in between leaving their church in Boston and coming here, some time to bond. And we just ask your blessing on them as they move into a different community, into different schools, have to find friends, and, and mostly for their ministry here. We just uh, pray that great things will be done. But at the same time, we think about our brothers and sisters in the flocks, flock at Westgate and the whole that their absence, the Levering family and Brandon, uh, will leave in their church community. And we pray that you would fill that. We know that you have someone in mind that will come in and, uh, you know, lift the church even to higher heights. And we pray that that would happen soon. And finally, Father, we lift, uh, lift up the offering to you 
and pray that it would be cheerfully given and that you would use it to do great and powerful things. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Hi, my name is Kathy Brogla Ashbacher. I am the director of Heart of Iowa. And Heart of Iowa is part of ASAC, which you may know as the Area Substance Abuse Council. We're a specific part that deals with mothers and children. And not only do we provide treatment services, but we work on addressing mental health needs. We work on parenting. We work on financial needs. We do just about everything we can think of to help our women become more self-sufficient and to become the women they were meant to be before addiction took over. Our main goal is, yes, recovery, but it is also parenting. We want the mothers here um, really have a hard time learning how to be a parent. Every single woman that walks through our door, every single woman is a chance for us to provide a miracle. We have had actually in our childcare, we had someone come back whose mother was here. She was here as a child and she loved it and felt such a sense of family here that when she turned 18, she wanted to work here in our childcare and she did. And these kids return and they come back and see us and they, they say thank you for um, helping my mom and they say, you know, thank you for helping me. My name's Chelsea, I'm 26, I have three kids. Janae is eight, Jaden's four, and Jace just turned three. Before I came here, I was a total disaster. I started using when I was 15, um, and it just really spiraled out of control. Then I had my daughter, and so I've never really experienced what it's like to be a mother soberly. I put my kids through a lot, obviously. Um, my daughter's eight, so you know, eight years of addiction for a little girl is a lot. At first, you know, I'm like, am I sure I wanted to do this? But my daughter's tears is what kept me here. Along my journey here, um, my daughter's able to now voice her um, feelings instead of just acting out on them. And I can't sit here and um, sit in my, you know, shame and guilt. I have to fix my problems. Otherwise, I'm gonna just continue to self-medicate and be sick. And with the support that the Heart of Iowa has offered me and continue and are there for me daily, on a daily basis, 24-7, I wouldn't be able to do it. Before I came here, I was like, you're born to die. There's no purpose. I'm working hard at something. You know, I was in such a dark place. And now I realize I'm only 26. By the time I'm 31, I can be one of these people that are my support, one of these counselors. I'm happy to say I'm 82 days clean and sober today, and I'm actually here internally and doing it, not just walking the walk, talking the talk. And um, I came here all on my own. I do not have to be here. I'm not court ordered here. I want to be here. And I am just truly blessed that they allow me to be here. We have so many needs that to us would be a luxury, but to so many people, it, it would feel like, you know, it's, it's just a, a given, but there are so many needs. We're all on this journey together and each of us has a part to play and we we don't start with blame or shame we start with how do we how do we fix this how do we move forward how do we help the help the people that need the help most and so we we're just asking for anyone and to um, provide any kind of help services that they can we'd love to have you out we'd love to show you around we'd love to have you meet some of the people and and just see what what love can do. We want them to succeed. It's all about it's all about doing the work that we were put on this earth to do. And without this place, who knows? Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Robin. I'm one of the pastors. And as Terry prayed, the Levering family has arrived in Cedar Rapids. And in fact, they're with us right now. So Brandon and family, if you're here, could you just stand up where you are? There they are in the back. There's Brandon, Carissa, and also Brandon's parents helped drive them out. So thank you. 
We welcome you and we praise the Lord that you're with us. Well, we have the opportunity as a church to serve and to meet the needs at ASAC Heart of Iowa. And as you saw in the video, Heart of Iowa is a treatment center for women who are recovering from substance abuse. And over the past year, as part of our ongoing 404 vision, we've developed a partnership with Heart of Iowa through teaching classes on things like cooking and budgeting. And as we've done those classes, we've become aware of the many needs that they are facing. So we invite you to join us on Serve Day, July 20th, from 9 to noon. And what we'll be doing is we hope to be a blessing to the women and the children by updating their treatment center and also their residential apartments. Some of the projects that we'll be doing include things like painting, cleaning, decorating, outdoor work, and building maintenance. And also in that morning, we'll be hosting a kids club at their facility similar to our Backyard Bible Club. So here's how all of you can be involved. We are looking for 104 volunteers of all ages. This could be a great family project. This could be a great thing for a life group to come about and also where you can come alongside an organization in our community that's already making a big difference with the women and children that live there. So there's information in the program on how you can sign up. I encourage you to check it out. You can also go to the welcome desk in the lobby or our webpage for more information. But what a fantastic opportunity for us as a church to take our next step with Jesus by serving and bringing hope to families who are in need. Thank you. Good morning. That wasn't as good as first service. You guys got to help me out. Good morning. Much more Midwestern. Thank you. Turn to the book of Mark, please. This morning, we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Mark. We're talking about defining Jesus. Today, we come to the concept of Jesus' family. Now, I was watching, uh, I was watching some videos this week, and one of them, I don't even know how I got to this. It's the YouTube rabbit hole. I know some of you guys, you've heard me talking about that before, but you start watching something about a recipe, and then you end with watching something that's completely unrelated. I somehow ended up on a Good Morning America video about Gwyneth Paltrow's marriage. It's just <laughs> troubling on so many levels. But, but they were talking about how her and her new husband have sort of re redefined what it looks like to be a married couple, to be a family, and they only spend a few days a week together, and then they do their own thing. And uh, one of the hosts said, um, you know, hey, what works? whatever works for you. And I thought, man, that's so indicative of the culture that we live in, right? Like, hey, whatever works for you. Like, define family, uh, define love in whatever way that you uh, assume is okay. And then just, if that works for you, that's great. The unfortunate part about that is, number one, it's not true. Um, I, I, my wife and I are hardly ever, like, not with each other. She uh, took the kids up to her parents' house this week, and when she was, she's gone for three days, and I shaved my head, which clearly, <laughs> not, there's no Nazarite vow or anything. I just, like, it, it, clearly I can't be left alone. <laughs> it doesn't work for us, um, not only from a pragmatic standpoint, but from a familial standpoint, right? We, we don't get to define such things. Jesus does. God's Word does. So today we're actually going to talk about how did Jesus define, and in fact, in his culture, redefine what family means. So I'm going to ask you to, to stand with me. We're going to read through the latter half of Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister 
and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you alone are the one who gets to define everything about our lives. Lord, because if we were to do that, we would end up in so much trouble. And many times we do, Lord. We stray from your word. We stray from the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We try to to, to define what our lives should look like outside of, of what you've told us, Lord, and, and we end up in misery and sorrow. And we come together this morning to worship you, to give you the praise that is your due, Lord, but also to say that we trust you to guide us, that we trust you to lead us. And Father, that, that we, as those who have put faith in Christ, as part of your family, we want to do your will. Lord, we love you and pray that this morning you might open our hearts to receive the word and change us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, we're going to go through four sections of chapter 3, starting with verse 7. Uh, and these four sections, we're going to look at how Jesus ends up defining who, in fact, is in Jesus' family. And there's going to be four very specific groups of people that we encounter and four questions that we need to ask according to each one of these groups. In verses 7 through 11, the first group that we encounter is the crowd, Jesus and the crowd. And the question that we're going to ask in this section is, who are the clueless? Who are the clueless? Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. See, the crowd that was following Jesus was interested in all that he was doing. He gathered a crowd. As Jesus was healing people, and this man with a withered hand, and, and, and as he was going around casting out demons, people wanted to see what the hubbub was. They wanted to see what was going on. The crowd was interested in what he could do for them. And so this massive crowd amasses Many who followed Jesus came to see how he could help them, but in many cases, they would not last as followers. See, many in the crowd were clueless. <clears throat> they liked the show, but as Jesus revealed more and more of who he actually was, people would leave, right? They, they, they would become sort of disenchanted with Jesus as he revealed himself, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I love offensive Jesus. I know some people don't, but I love offensive Jesus because many times I think I'm doing okay and then I'll go to the Gospels and read what, what Jesus said and I realize I'm not doing okay. I still need repentance. I still need correction. I still need help. There are things that I think about Jesus that get corrected as I come to Scripture. There are structures in my mind that I've made up about how he works or who he is that need to be corrected. I, I'm like the crowd. I want Jesus to do great things for me. Hey, Jesus, perform for me. Do what I want you to do. Like, do parlor tricks. Make my life great. Show me a miracle. But when Jesus calls me to repent, when Jesus calls me out for sin, then, then it's a little tougher to crowd around Jesus. So there was this great, great crowd that had amassed. And, and offensive Jesus works in ways that, that we don't even think he works in. And, and one of the reasons that, that Jesus spoke in parables, this is a good question to ask, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, this is answered in chapter 4. Look over really quickly at chapter 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And you might, you might have heard somebody say, well, parables are to help us understand clearer. Well, look at verse 11. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Now, wait a minute. Did Jesus just say that he was almost speaking in secret code so that people would not repent and be forgiven? That's exactly what he said. I think sometimes... We think, oh yeah, Jesus spoke in parables to make it clearer. That only works if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, he just confuses you more. And 
in, like increasingly, as Jesus would amass this following, he'd say harder and harder things to where more and more people would actually go away from him. He was thinning out the crowd. He was not building the crowd. He was thinning it out. And to us, that's sort of shocking and even sort of offensive. Why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to know? Jesus was showing us that it's not, it's not by our power or our decision or our authority that we make him submit to us. In fact, what he was showing us is, is real faith is way more complicated than, than we imagine that it would be because it requires allowing Jesus to define himself rather than us trying to define Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus spoke in parables so that they wouldn't understand. In fact, what we get in, in John is Jesus ultimately says to this group of people, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And many left. And then he turns to his, own, his, his closest and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to go too? Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. He was not easy to figure out for the crowd. James Edwards, in a commentary on Mark, says this. He says, the crowd is a, a paradox. Its needs command Jesus' attention, and Jesus is fully attentive to the misery present in its numbers, but its clamor is not a response of faith. Th this crowd that was gathering around Jesus, they were not gathering around him as a response of faith. They were gathering around him because they needed him for something, but they, they, this, this was not them understanding and trusting in him. How do we know this? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. Here's where we get the contrast. Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. See, in verse 10, it says that Jesus healed many so that all who had diseases pressed him or fell in upon him. They needed something from him, so they, they fall in upon him to almost crush him. But when Jesus encounters the unclean spirits, the demons, they fall down before him. And I want you to see the contrast here between these people who it would seem are following Jesus, but they're not really. They don't really know who he is. But when Jesus encounters demons, they immediately know who he is. And they even fall down. But is that repentance? No, obviously not. See, even James says, you, you say that there is one God and you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. Now, one of the most shocking and offensive and terrifying things about the Gospels is that when Jesus shows up in this territory that the demons think is not supposed to be his, they still fall down before him and recognize his authority. That does not make them saved. See, they actually have a certain type of faith that is even unreachable at this point by the crowd. The crowd doesn't know who Jesus is. There is no repentance. There is no response. And how terrifying is it that faith in Jesus is not merely saying, you are the Son of God. Faith in Jesus is not hanging around the things of Jesus. Going to church is not in and of itself faith in Christ. Do you understand? Being around Jesus' people is not in and of itself faith in Christ. These people were around Jesus himself. They were following him to see what he could do for them. It shows us that proximity to what Jesus is doing is no guarantee of knowing who Jesus is. You might think, I, I've been in church my whole life. Well, let me tell you something. I know lots of people who have been in church their whole life. And, and they've got the religious pedigree. They've got scriptures memorized. But there has been no heart change. There is no definitive desire to be obedient to Jesus. Instead, there is an attempt to control Jesus by religious structures to make sure that, hey, I'm good. As long as I go to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I tithe, as long as I do all these things, then I can go do my own life, and then Jesus has got my back. I can leave Jesus over here, and then when I need him, I'll, I'll go crowd around him and ask him to, to heal me or to help me. 
but I don't really follow him. This statement that Jesus makes to the demons is also a little off-putting, right? He's, he warns them, he cautions them, he actually commands them and orders them not to make him known. And again, why wouldn't Jesus want the demons to just say, tell everybody, hey, this is the Son of God? Because then maybe if they heard it from the unclean spirits, we wouldn't run into the, the, pa- in the passage later on when the scribes accuse him of, of being in league with Satan. If, the de- if they would have just let the demons say, hey, this is the Son of God, then everybody would know, right? So why didn't Jesus allow them to say who he was? It's because Jesus made himself known on his own terms. This, this passage of Scripture, this section, is all about Jesus' authority. We don't command Jesus. Jesus commands us. We don't come to Jesus on our terms. He determines the stipulations. He sets the terms. He calls his people, his disciples, his family on his terms. So he wouldn't let them say anything. The very next section, we see Jesus and the apostles. Verses 13 through 21, this is where Jesus is actually showing us that he's setting the terms for those whom he calls. And the question we ask in this section is, who are those who are called? Who are called? Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. See, Jesus didn't simply receive disciples. He made them. He created them. At this point in time, when you talk about rabbis, rabbis that would go around and and would teach on the Torah, who would teach the law, what would happen was students would would sort of view these rabbis and, and see which rabbi they wanted to follow. They would choose their rabbi. Jesus being Jesus, an offensive uh, structure overturning Jesus, he called his disciples, right? He didn't just allow anybody to just run to him and be like, hey, I'm in with you because I think you're smarter. He called his disciples. He went to a mountain, he chose his disciples, he called them, and they came. Because when Jesus calls his people, they come. How do we know this is true? John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. They follow me. See, Jesus is setting his own terms. Jesus won't allow the crowd to control him. Why did Jesus appoint 12? Well, this is indicative of Jesus' claim on Israel. He's fulfilling what has always been the messianic goal. Look at verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. See, Jesus here is establishing something new. He's establishing a new nation. 12 is a very important number in the Word of God. In Scripture, 12 signifies completion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding of when God does something and he completes it. That's why you see 12 is a big deal and multiples of 12 in the book of Revelation, the 144,000, right, multiples of 12. Uh, what, you're, what you're seeing is this idea that what God does, he completes. He completes the work he starts. And so just as he set aside 12 tribes of Israel, now what he's doing is he's saying, okay, I'm going to amp this thing up. Like, here is the nation. And so he chooses for himself 12 very specific, calls them apostles, and he gives them this distinction as being his followers. It falls into three categories. Number one is fellowship, that they might be with him. And see, everything is founded on this. Everything is founded on the fellowship, that they might be with him. That's a relationship, and everything else stems from that. I think it's wonderful to know that, that Christ called them for relationship, right? Not, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a brotherhood sense. This is where we're reminded that Jesus was fully human. 
Jesus fully experienced even, even the human needs that we experience of, of being with other human beings, of having a brotherhood around him, and he called them for relationship. And that's the primary mark of these men, that they were set apart to be with him. Also for proclamation, he sends them out to preach. He gives them purpose. And also for action, he actually gives them the authority to cast out demons. But this call on their lives was not simply functional. It was primarily relational. And this is what we have to view. Jesus doesn't just call these men and say, hey, go do something. Jesus calls them primarily to be with him. And that's why we're called. See, the crowd, the crowd wasn't there for relationship. The crowd was there for healing. The crowd was there to receive something from him that didn't really cost anything. But Jesus calls to himself primarily disciples who will find their number one priority in being with him. It's what we, we've said before. Jesus is not a means to an end. Brother and sister, Jesus is the goal. The goal of a relationship with Christ is Christ. And if, if you see the goal of a relationship with Christ as being all the wonderful blessings that he can give to you, you're going to find yourself disillusioned. Because the goal of faith in Christ is Christ himself. We are satisfied in relationship with him, and out of that relationship flows obedience. There's something interesting about this group in terms of their makeup. Jesus does not call according to status, but he calls in spite of status. As we look at who these men were, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, which is the greatest title. I wish my parents would have named me and my brother sons of thunder. That's, that's fantastic, isn't it? Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, here's the deal. This group was socially diverse. As we see them listed out, we have fishermen and tax collectors who really were mortal enemies because the way that the economy worked at that time, uh, fishermen really had a lot of like, you know, assets, like hard assets. And the, they were easy prey for the tax collectors because it was readily available. And so the tax collectors would nail them at a much greater rate than they would nail other people. And so you can imagine that when Peter's hanging out with Jesus and Jesus, you know, when, when his disciples are hanging around with him who were the fishermen and Jesus walks up to the tax collector booth and says, what about you, buddy? You want to come with me too? You'd be a little perturbed. <laughs> Wait a minute. That guy's not in on what we're in on. So they're socially diverse. And we're also showed that they are flawed. This group was flawed. Look at verse 19. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The only one who really gets the, the definitive idea. Mark, Mark really puts a point on this. These guys were socially diverse, but they were also really flawed. Because Mark lets us know right there in the beginning, one of these dudes is going to betray him. That's not, a, that's not a glowing recommendation on this group of men. But, but here's the deal. We're, we're never meant to come to Scripture and, and heighten people over Jesus. We're never meant to come to Scripture and make saints out of these people in, in a way that we revere them above all other people. We are meant to be pointed to the idea that even these people whom Jesus chose, even these ones whom Jesus called to be his disciples, we're still going to struggle with sin. We're still going to be flawed. We're still going to screw up. To, to show us that Christ himself is our example. That Christ himself is the one that we chase after. Again, James Edwards says, the society into which he calls them is determined not by their preferences, but by his summons. Its members have nothing in common except his sovereign call, apart from which the community cannot exist. These men, what they had in common, what united them was that Jesus called them. And brothers and sisters, this is what unites us, right? We don't, we don't somehow think that we got into the body of Christ of our own work or because we had a pedigree that we were born into, right? If you grew up in church, if you didn't grow up in church, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what race you are, what nationality you are, or ethnicity. It doesn't matter what, what sociological spectrum you come from. What unites us as God's people is the call of God. His Holy Spirit quickening us, making us alive. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
That's good news. And you know, the call and commission of the 12 is representative of that of all Jesus' disciples. Now, we're not going to get hung up on the, the, the specifics of the difference between apostle and disciples, but to say that in, in a logic statement this way, uh, all the apostles are disciples, <clears throat> but not all disciples are apostles. These men were set apart for a very specific work. There were some things that they were commissioned to do by Jesus that we, we are not in the same way commissioned to do, in the same way that they were. <clears throat> but those three distinctives, fellowship, proclamation, and action, those are indicative of all disciples through all time, everywhere. So Jesus sets the standard and sets the terms for those whom he calls to himself. In verse 20 and 21, give us sort of an initial distinction between those who were called and those who were concerned. Look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And we get this, this initial sort of contrast with Jesus' own family, right? Hears about all these crowds and how he's doing all this stuff and they're like, he is crazy. The Greek there of, of, of that, he's out of his mind, is he's gone berserk. So how discouraging is it to you and probably to Jesus, that his own family thought he was insane. Right? That's why I said proximity to Jesus. Proximity to Jesus doesn't mean anything. Because his own family, his, his mom, and his brother and sisters, they thought he was nuts. They, in fact, in the Gospels, they make fun of him. It was only after he was risen that, that some of his family actually called upon him, <laughs> believed. They watched this all happen and thought he was crazy. The next section now, we transition into another group of people, Jesus and the scribes. And the question that we ask here are who are controlling? See, the scribes were the official religious opposition to Jesus. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And here, Mark is distinguishing that faith is not the natural result of observing evidence, even for the religious. They had evidence. They, they, they saw him casting out demons. But instead of even saying like, wow, something's going on with this guy, their immediate leap, because he didn't fit into their religious structure, their immediate leap was he must be doing this by the power of Satan. He must be doing this by the power of the devil. He must be doing this by the power of Beelzebul. Because he's not in with us, and we don't know who's given him authority. It's not God, because we control God's authority. This is what the scribes were saying. They accused Jesus of working for Beelzebul, and Beelzebul, the word, means the house or the master of the house of Baal. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, Baal was one of the chief Canaanite gods that was worshipped, right? Like that, that Baal worship, or even when you raise up Asherah poles or make uh, idols to Baal, what, you, what you're worshipping is this false god. And so the idea at this, at this point in time in the ancient Near East was that gods were territorial. So if you go to one area, you might find, uh, you know, Baal is the god over this area of people. If you go to, you might find Asherah is a god over here, and a multiplicity of gods that are territorial. And so what they were saying was like, he's working off of the authority of Beelzebul, or the master of the house of Baal. He's working off the authority of the devil. But Jesus uses this opportunity to establish his authority to plunder the kingdom of Satan. This is what he does in verses 23 through 27. Jesus says, to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. I want you to turn very quickly to Isaiah chapter 49, please. Isaiah 49. 
the prophetic text in Isaiah, speaking of the one who would be Messiah, 49 verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jesus says to the scribes, listen, if I were working for Satan, how in the world could Satan's kingdom stand? Because I am casting out his own agents. A house divided is not going to be able to stand. And then he tells this story of, a, of no one entering a strong man's house and being able to steal unless first you tie the person up. If you're to break into somebody who's like buff and strong, you're not just going to be able to walk in and start taking their stuff, Jesus says. You're going to have to tie that person up before you take their stuff. And Jesus, in, in this statement, is actually sort of cross-referencing Isaiah. Like, who can do this? Who can take captives from a tyrant? And Jesus is showing up and saying, I can. I can. Who's going to plunder the kingdom of Satan? I will. I'm going to set the captives free. I'm binding the strong man. Jesus' work is the display of establishing his kingdom and his household. Do you see what he's doing here? He's, he's telling them, look, in fact, I am, I am the thief. I, I, in this scenario, in this parable, Jesus is the one who's breaking and entering. <gasps> I know it's shocking, right? Jesus is the one who's breaking into the house. See, Scripture tells us, if you look in Ephesians, Paul very clearly says that we know that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. That's why Jesus shows up when he's tempting, uh, why Satan shows up when he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and he says, hey, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Right? Evidently, J Satan really did have the ability to, to give something, but here's the great thing about Jesus. Jesus shows up and says, no thanks, thanks for the offer. I'll go ahead and take my people anyway. I'll go ahead and break in. In fact, I don't need your permission. Why? This is on my authority. You think this guy's strong? I'm going to tie him up. And I'm going to take all his stuff. And then he gives these, these scribes a warning. The warning that Jesus gives is a particular danger for the self-righteously religious. Look at verse 28 and 30. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And this question comes up, well, what is blasphemy of the Spirit? What, what is this? This makes me nervous. Can, can we commit this unforgivable sin? Well, <clears throat> I want to suggest to you that if you're worried about whether or not you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Right? If you're nervous, you're like, how do I know if I've committed the unforgivable sin? You wouldn't be repentant. That's how you would know. You wouldn't care. It wouldn't bother you. Most times, the people that are the most nervous about it are probably the ones who are actually uh, increasingly desirous to follow after God, and they're more nervous about those things. And, and we need some context here. In fact, in, in the book of Acts, as part of Stephen's speech, as he's being stoned in chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, he speaks to these same religious group, and he says, you stiff-necked people, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. What does it look like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit or to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan or unclean spirit? What does it look like? You crucify Jesus, then you kill all of his followers. That's what it looks like. You understand? That's what it looks like. To be so completely opposed to the plan of, of God, to the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it doesn't look like. I used to get nervous because I'm like, well, what if I see, you know, this healing and it looks like it's real? I, I probably shouldn't call that out. Let me tell you something. If you see something on TV where some guy in, in like a $5,000 suit is waving his jacket at people who are only moderately inconvenienced and they're being healed magically and giving a bunch of money to this guy while the people in the wheelchairs in the back are not getting healed at all, I can very clearly tell you that's not a work of the Spirit. 
That's a work of human greed motivated, motivated by the devil, period. That is not about the kingdom of God. That is not about glory to Christ. Does that mean that God can't heal? No, God can heal. But there are very clearly some things that we can look at and say that is not the work of the Spirit. And in doing that, we're not committing the unforgivable sin. See, to commit the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy against the Spirit is to for as long as you can imagine until the point in which you walk into eternity being actively opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's going into eternity unrepentant and then receiving eternal damnation. See, the religious people would not submit themselves to Jesus' authority. They wanted him to go along with their plan. But Jesus binds the enemy, and he calls his people in spite of that, and he shows us that we have no claim on him. We have no claim on him. See, the religious people at this point in time, they wanted to sort of be a go-between the people and God, right? They They didn't want anybody to have access to God the way they have access to God. And this is where I need to bring up a couple very specific things. You might think, well, that doesn't happen now. We don't have a religious system like that. Oh, yes, we do. It's the whole reason the Protestant Reformation happened in the first place. It's because the Roman Catholic Church set up structures to say, oh, you're too stupid to know who God is. And if you want forgiveness, you're going to come through us. And very brave men stood up and said, this is not how Jesus works. And let me, let me be very clear, right? For forgiveness of sins, you don't have to go through a priest. For infallibility in God's commands, you don't have to go through a pope. You understand? There is no religious system that can be set up to take the place of Jesus Christ. He would not allow it. He said, I'm going to break in and I'm going to take my people. But listen, we still do the same thing in Protestant churches. Some of you might look up at me and be like, oh, he's a pastor. He's untouchable. Y'all, I am so messed up, it's not even funny. If you were in my head through the course of the week or any other pastor that works in any church, we are sinful, we are fallible, and we are subject to the same sins that anybody else is. I don't have a lockdown on the knowledge of God, neither does any other pastor across the nation or the world. We are called for a very specific purpose to devote our lives to the the proclamation of Scripture and to prayer and to discipling. But listen, none of us have authority over you in a way that supersedes Jesus. You are answerable to Christ. I am answerable to Christ. And as far as I point you to Christ, I am useful. The moment I begin to point you to my own authority, I am useless. Do you understand that? And unfortunately, we repeat the same mistakes through history where we try to set up religious systems to say like, hey, now I got to go through somebody else to get to Jesus. Now I got to go through somebody else to get to Jesus. No, we come boldly to the throne of grace through Christ because there is one mediator between God and man. Amen? One mediator. Jesus started a new kingdom. And he shows that there are insiders and outsiders. Again, it looks very elitist for Jesus to say, hey, there are insiders and there are outsiders, but it's true. Jesus alone sets his authority. He sets the stipulations by which we come to him. And in verses 31 through 35, Jesus amps this up again, and he creates a new family, Jesus and his family. Look at verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. The question that we have here is, who are Christ's? Who are those who belong to Christ? Who are those who are in Christ's family. Jesus' family shows up, and they think they have a claim on him, 
and they believe that he is making a mistake. Look, they stand and they call to him. They send him. They show up and they're outside and there's this crowd with Jesus hanging out with him and mom and his sisters and brothers show up and they stand there and they're like, hey, you need to tell him to come out here because we're going to take him home because he's embarrassing the family. Now, I want to point out something in here that, again, is very, very helpful to us. For, for those of you who may have grown up in religious systems that misinterpret what Scripture says, very clearly in this passage, Mary was in sin. Do you understand, do you understand the implications of this, right? Mary shows up thinking that she's going to command his, her son to do something because clearly he's, he's out of his mind. He's gone berserk. Why don't you come home with us, honey? You're, right? You haven't had your Snickers. You're not yourself. Mary was wrong. So subtly under the text, what are we showing? We don't worship Mary. She was a sinful human being who God graciously chose to physically bear the Savior of the world. Above that, nothing. She was still under the authority of Christ in the same way that you and I are under the authority of Christ. And she shows up and she says, hey, we're your family. And Jesus looks around and he tells everybody around him. They say, hey, your family's here. And Jesus does this redefinition thing. Looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, they believed it was their place to exert authority over him, but Jesus redefines family according to the grace of God. He says, these people who are sitting around me who do my will, these people who, are, who want to be with me, who are motivated to obey me, this is my family. Do you see? And that, that, that offended this culture because that was a patriarchal, very, very family-centric culture. Right? It's so much so that you get the one person who Jesus says, hey, follow me, because I got to hang around until my dad dies and bury him. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. That seems like a heartless statement. I mean, think about that. If you've ever lost a loved one, and you're like, sorry, Jesus, I'll follow you once, you know, my, once my parents are gone, then I can follow you. Jesus is like, let them take care of themselves. You're like, Jesus, that's pretty sharp. Jesus is not throwing families under the bus. But what he is showing us is that, that the family structure is not over his family, Right? And in fact, Jesus says, I, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword and to, to divide a household. He says, there are going to be people in, in a home where you have somebody who's serving Jesus and the rest of the family is not, and that person who's serving Jesus is more family with people that they are not blood-related to than they are to that family who they are blood-related to. We all the time, and we have the same issue in our culture. We say blood is thicker than water, but Jesus' blood is thicker still. Do you understand? But we make idols out of our nuclear families and we, and we seem to, like, we sequester ourselves off. And many parents, I'm going I'm to hit us, parents, I'm going to hit you hard. We look at our family and our kids as they are the end all of everything. And the best thing that we can do is do everything to make them successful. So we put them in like five sports. We have them do extracurriculars. We burden them down. We make sure that their resume for when they go to college is great. And yet, still, increasingly, the number of people in depression and purposeless when they're exiting college is higher than it's ever been because we're teaching them to rely on a structure and and purposes and, and to, to think that the highest they can attain to is achieving their own kingdom. And if you can grab Jesus and take him along with you, how great is that? And Jesus says, I'm not going to have any part of that. Folks, as the church of God, and parents, listen to me. We need to instill in our kids, not go to church because you're supposed to go to church. This is our family. This is our family. That means my, my children will watch other saints besides their parents grow in faith. They will be, be mentored by brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. Do you understand? Does everybody understand? 
There's a lot of things that we could spend our time on. I guarantee you, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, when Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, no one who has left, father or mother or brother or sister, home, will not receive a thousand times more in this life and in the next. When we put Jesus' family first, everything that you think you're going to lose, you will gain more because you have him. What is important to learn about what Jesus says? Here's where we end. Two things. Those who assume that they are close to Jesus might be wrong. You might be sitting in here this morning and thinking like, I'm great. (laughs) I go to church all the time. You know, we have a Bible at home. I show up for things. I get involved in stuff. I'm close to Jesus. You might be wrong. Do you spend time with him? Is your life about the purpose of proclaiming the gospel? Do you obey the will of God? Are you involved in the life of Christ's body, the church? Those who assume they're close to Jesus might be wrong. His family was wrong. But the second is this, and I want you to hear me. Some of you need to hear this. Those who assume that they are too far from Jesus have a great reason to be hopeful. One of the most brilliant things that I, that I know from, from our family being a blended family is this. Like, blood does not make a family. Do you understand that? I know we, we're really proud of that. Like, even we as parents will be like, oh, they look just like me, right? That's, that's great. Props to you for being able to make a human being. But listen, Let's, let's be serious about this. Blood alone does not make a family. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. Who experienced that more than Jesus? A bunch of half-siblings who were like, we don't even like you. A father who, who was a, a stepdad. For all intents and purposes, right? who we don't hear anything else about after the birth narrative. And you might think, I am, I, I'm not, I'm so far from the family of God, I don't do things right, I'm sinful, I, I am stupid, I am constantly screwing up, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. You are not too far from God. If you want to be in God's family, it's very simple. You repent of trying to make your own way to paradise. <laughs> you believe in the truth that there's salvation in no one else but Christ. You call on his name, and scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and we would invite you to do that. You think you're too far, you're not. You think I've never had a functional family. Neither have any of us really. <laughs> not in the way that it's meant to be but Jesus will take you in. Amen? God will take you in. Just some questions as we wrap up today that I want you to think about. Number one, is it possible to spend time around the things of God and the people of God and yet not truly have faith in Christ? And for some, for some that's a question we need to wrestle with. One of my goals in life, really, honestly, brothers and sisters, is this. I grew, up, I grew up in church doing all the right things. I was, I was like the choir boy in high school, and I radically experienced a period of rebellion when I got to college that was so, I mean, I, it was, it's crazy. You can think, you're like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, and then you go off the deep end, and you're like, I don't even know if I was ever in. One of my goals is to not let anybody just assume on God's grace. Examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if Christ is in you. Number two, are the marks of a disciple present in my life? In what areas am I missing the call of Jesus? Number three, have I been assuming that I'm in relationship with Jesus because of birthright, prayer, or profession? Who did Jesus say is in his family? And am I convinced that I am part of it. And number four, are there good things, one of which being family, 
that I'm valuing over the kingdom and family of God? And one good question for those of us who claim Christ, how much time do I spend with God's people? How much time do I spend with the family of God? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we acknowledge that you alone have the authority to set up your kingdom, to set up your nation. You alone have the authority to set up your family. God, we praise you for the grace that you've extended towards us in Christ. We ask that you would help us to be repentant from the heart. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that are assuming on your grace, that they would come to repentance, trust in you, pick up their cross, and follow you. Lord, we ask that this morning for those of us who are following you, Lord, that that we've been saved, we've been set apart, Lord, that we would treasure the things that you treasure, that we would be those who are primarily known from being with you and doing your will. God, we would pray again for, for grace, Lord. We confess that we've missed the mark on that so bad. But we pray for restoration. And we just enjoy the forgiveness that you offer to us. Lord, we love you and we praise your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.